Uh, thanks, Stephen. Uh, there's an outline of the talk in the bulletin, and there are Bibles in the foyer if you need one, though references will be coming up on the screen. Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that you would help us to listen, to hear this word as your word spoken to us, to understand it and to take it to heart. And we pray that you would help me teach this word truthfully and clearly to your honour and glory. Amen. Uh, when we purchased uh, a new kettle, there was a plastic bag around it and on the plastic bag there were instructions telling me to dispose of it carefully and not allow children to play with it. Uh, open the flap, the fuel flap on my car, and there's a reminder not to put petrol into the diesel engine. Go to my meter box, and there's these green signs there telling electricians to make sure they shut down the solar panels, power the solar power before they work on the system. Warnings are everywhere, and most of them are useful preventing harm to others and damage to property that would seriously disrupt our lives. And in Malachi too, we have a warning, a warning to the priests, the group we met last week in chapter one, the spiritual leaders of the returned exiles in Jerusalem, a warning designed to prevent harm and promote life. And now you priests, this warning is for you. The priests were entrusted with the running of the temple, the place of God's presence amongst his people, and especially with making the offerings, uh, offering the sacrifices that God had commanded uh, to deal with his people's sin. And so the priests carried responsibility for maintaining the covenant relationship between God and his people, which was the heart of Israel's existence. In chapter 2, though, uh, we've seen that the priests were grievously failing in that responsibility, offering as sacrifices animals that were unacceptable, making the sacrifices ineffective, leaving the people in and promoting their sin. And at the heart of that failure was a lack of respect for the Lord, not giving him the honour that was his due. In fact, they had a contempt for what God had revealed of himself in his dealings with Israel, a contempt and a profaning of his name. It is you priests, says Malachi, who show contempt for my name. It's they who profane God's name. And it is these same priests that God through Malachi is addressing directly in chapter two, warning them of a failure to repent in verses one to four, reminding them of what a true priest should be like in verses 5 to 7 and pronouncing a just judgment on their sin in verses 8 to 9. And you might hear that and think, well, that's all very clear, but what has that got to do with me? I mean, we don't have priests or sacrifices. We're not ancient Israel. And so, at this point, be tempted to tune out. Or you might have some kind of academic interest in what's being talked about here. You know, I can see how we could draw some principles about Christian leadership from this passage, but really not particularly applicable to me. But don't tune out and don't think that Malachi 2 is just of academic interest only, because these words of God are spoken to you 
if you're a believer in Jesus. Remember as you listen that God has said that trusting Jesus because of Jesus' death for our sin, we are all now priests. We all, every believer, has access to God, to his very presence. Every believer is involved in making sacrifices, the sacrifices of praise and doing good. And like the priests, every believer has responsibility for the word of God. We've been made a holy priesthood. This is written for us. The priests of the new covenant brought into being by our Lord Jesus and his sacrifice for himself, that new covenant we will remember and celebrate in the table of our Lord. So what is the content of this warning that God issues to his priests? And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have re not resolved to honour me. So what's God looking for in this warning? What's he seeking to promote? Well, God's looking for a change of heart because that's where the heart of the problem lies. And so he calls on the priest, firstly, to listen to his word, including his word through his prophet Malachi. To listen is to hear, to understand and to take to heart, to let his word affect our will. It's to put what God says against what you believe and say that where what you believe does not conform to what God says, you have to change your mind. It's to put what God says against what you are doing or you might want to do and say, where what I'm doing does not conform to God's instruction, I have to change my behaviour. That's what it is to listen. And to listen seems such a simple request, doesn't it? But let's face it, we find it hard to listen. We see that in our children, don't we? You know, we say, don't hit your sister. Or on one memorable occasion in our family, don't ride your bike down the driveway and onto the road. We say don't, and they do. Oh, sometimes we see how hard it is to listen in those working for us. We give careful instruction on what and how we want something done, and it still doesn't get done that way. Oh, we see how hard it is to listen in people in conflict. You know, that apology or concession by one is ignored or twisted or denied. And we see how hard it is to listen in humanity's relationship with God. Perhaps you recognise how hard you find it to listen to God. You see, what do people do with the word God speaks? Well, sometimes they just don't hear. Oh, oh, sorry, God, were you talking to me? My mind was elsewhere. I wasn't paying attention because, well, I actually didn't think you were important enough. Or, or sometimes the word's heard and then reinterpreted to conform to the way we want to see the world or, or what we want to do. You know, you've heard people say, oh, it's only exploitative sexual relationships outside marriage God condemns, not genuinely loving ones like mine. Sometimes the word is heard and Discounted. Oh, he couldn't really have meant to say that. It's just cultural truth for them back there. Sometimes it's just heard and forgotten, or it's heard and, let's face it, we do know better, so we just said decide. We have many ways of not listening to God, but God wants his people to listen. Remember the story 
that uh, Jesus told us the first of his parables, the story of the sower and the seed. That's all about how we listen to God's word. And that's what distinguishes one soil from another. The good soil is those who hear the word and welcome it. And what's the refrain of each of the Lord Jesus' messages to his church in Revelation 2 and 3? Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listening to the Lord and keeping on listening to the Lord, receiving his word as the word of our almighty creator and saviour and Lord. That's actually at the heart of our relationship with him. It's the beginning, middle and end of that relationship. Oh, and as the priests listen to his word, the Lord wants them especially to change their attitude to him, to resolve to honour his name, to set their hearts to give God glory. Now, this is a call for repentance, to change their minds about how they're relating to God. See, God's complaint, as we saw in chapter 1, is that they despise his name, his revelation of himself, that they profane treat as a common and unholy thing what God has told them about himself. And so God here calls on these priests to acknowledge that they were wrong to think that he is of no account someone who could be safely disregarded and ignored, wrong to think it was such a wearisome burden to relate to him. Rather, they're called to start to treat him as his revelation of himself, his name, showed he deserved to be treated. They start to treat him as the almighty creator, the eternal self-existent God dependent on no one, the one who will always keep his word, the one who will always achieve his purposes, the one who is gracious and merciful judge and ruler of all, yes, and the saviour who had rescued them from Egypt and then delivered them from Babylon. He calls on them to honour his revelation of himself, to see that he deserves all their thanks, their trust, their obedience, their praise. And he calls on them in treating him with the respect, the honour, the weight his revelation of himself deserves, to confess that to be his people is a wonderful privilege and delight and that life is found in heeding his commands. What God is looking for is clear, that they listen and resolve to honour his name. And he tells them that failure to respond will be disastrous for them and for all who are theirs. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have resolved not to honour me. Because of you, I'll rebuke your descendants. I'll smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. To be cursed is to experience the judgment God pronounces on his disobedient people in Deuteronomy 28, which climax on them being cut off from God's people. And God says here particularly, I will curse your blessings. And blessings has a twofold sense. So firstly, 
uh, blessings is a reference to the material benefits the priests have received because of their role in Israel's covenant. You know, their status amongst God's people, the provisions made for them in terms of food and other support, their right to share in the offerings on the altar. All this they will lose. But the role of the priests also included pronouncing blessing in the Lord's name. Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Where their blessings are cursed, such blessings, instead of bringing prosperity and peace from the Lord, will bring the opposite, judgment. Instead of mediating life and peace, the priests will now mediate harm and ill. And they will lose, as we saw in verse 3, their hereditary place in the worship of the Lord. I will smear on your faces the dung of your festival sacrifice. It's a fairly confronting statement, isn't it? The dung, uh, more particularly the offal, for offal, the guts of the animals the priests sacrificed, was reckoned unclean and was taken outside the camp and burnt. And God's saying, where these priests don't repent, they will be reckoned unclean and unfit for God's presence and removed, removed forever from his service. The consequences of their failing to listen and honour God are clear and serious, not just for them, but for their descendants and the people of Israel. These are very threatening words. So why does God speak them? Verse 4. You will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. He speaks because of a wonderfully good purpose, so that the covenant with Levi may continue. Now, that covenant is not one that's been made with the individual son of Jacob, the Levi we meet in Genesis. Levi here stands for the tribe of Levi, including the priests. And while the language of making a covenant with the tribe of Levi doesn't occur in that form in the first five books of the Bible, it's quite clear in those first five books that God has entered into a special relationship with the tribe of Levi. As part of the covenant at Sinai and in response to their zeal for God's honour at the incident of the golden calf, Levi was set apart to perform the vital role in that covenant, given all the work associated with the tabernacle and the sacrifices. And members of the priesthood, like Phineas, because of their zeal for God's honour, were given special promises. God made a covenant of peace with Phineas and his descendants. And so Levi, the tribe of Levi, received within the covenant made at Sinai special, a special role and relationship. From Exodus 32, there was an agreement between the tribe and God which brought responsibility and blessing, which forms a covenant within that covenant as they teach the tribes and as they offer sacrifices. And so while there may be lack of clarity about the exact origin of this covenant, the point of God's warning to the tribe of Levi is clear. He wants their role and relationship to continue. He wants the work of the priests to continue to be a blessing to them and a blessing to the nation. God is speaking this morning to maintain the covenant for his people's sake. 
so that right sacrifice is made, true instruction given. And this will be good for the priests and good for the people, as the next few verses will make clear. God warns so that God's people continue to live as God's people. And we should hear that, shouldn't we? Because God does warn his people about the consequences of their persistent disobedience, their persistent failure to listen to him and honour him by believing what he says. He does that throughout the Old Testament, through the prophets he sent regularly to Israel, and he warns in the New Testament as well. He warns us. Those warnings, those calls to repentance, shouldn't be resented. They shouldn't be objected to because the language seems so confronting and they shouldn't be dismissed. They should be welcomed by God's people, welcomed by us as the Lord's provision to keep us in relationship with himself. And so, for example, in Revelation 2 and 3, four out of seven churches are rebuked, rebuked for, say, their loss of love or their compromise with idolatry or their sexual immorality or their worldly complacency. They're called to repentance and are warned about what would happen if they failed to repent. But why does God give that warning? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Rebukes and warnings are given for our good out of his love. And we should take them to heart. And the first word will always be listen. Listen <coughs> and set your heart to honour my name, to treat me and my words with the weight I deserve because of who I am, your God and your Saviour. And so today, if you're doing something you know God forbids, Envy, lying, stealing. Oh, if you're entertaining some course of action that's against God's word, like developing a relationship outside marriage or developing a relationship with a non-Christian, or, or if you're letting your life slip into a path where you're putting yourself first, not God, you're substituting your judgment about what's right and wrong for what God says, say either about sex or money or the need to love his people or to be setting your heart in heaven, well, you ought to know that God in his word warns you that if you keep doing those things, you will come under his judgment. And if you persevere in them, you will not inherit his kingdom. And God warns because he loves you. So stop and turn back. Give him the honour, the glory, the weightiness he deserves by listening and changing your heart to do his will. Well, the goal of this warning in Malachi is that God would have a true priesthood and that will be good for the priests and good for the people. My covenant was with him a covenant of life and peace and I gave them to him this call for reverence and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. What was involved in relating to God in covenant relationship? What was the experience of that relationship like for Levi? Well, he says it was life and peace. And together these speak of wholeness and well-being, soundness and long life, prosperity, safety, protection. It was 
good. <coughs> and then it says, this called for reverence, as if this was a kind of response independent and additional to living in the covenant. But in the Hebrew text, it just says reverence. The covenant is life, peace, reverence. Reverence, or the fear of the Lord, is as much a part of the covenant as life and peace. It's, it's not an add-on, but an essential, intrinsic part of relating to the living God. And the people's reverence, of course, is the means by which they enjoy the other blessings of life and peace. For it is the beginning of the wisdom that commits itself to live by God's word and turns us away from evil. This covenant was not burdensome, but enriching, a blessing and a privilege. And the Levi of old, says Malachi, lived that life, a life embodied in the priests of old, like Phineas. Those true priests who kept this covenant were characterised by a distinctive attitude. It says, he feared the Lord and he stood in awe of my name. Though daily dealing with the things of God, the reality of God's revelation of himself, in a sense, always threatened to overwhelm him. He could never get over God being just and righteous, gracious and merciful, faithful and loving. And it gave these priests a distinctive attitude, a distinctive activity. The faithful teaching of the Lord. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. The teaching of the law was entrusted to the Israelites, to the Levites, sorry. And the true priest teaches it faithfully. His instruction is true, faithful, trustworthy, giving reliably what God has said, whether in instruction or judgment, without deviation, deduction or addition. Nothing false was found on his lips. And with that attitude and that activity, that commitment to God's word, the true priest set an example to the people. He walked with me, says God, in peace and uprightness. And walk speaks of daily conduct. And in his daily life, the true priest walked with God, that is, fell into step with him, conformed his life to God's will and character, and so was in harmony with God. He lived a life characterised by the integrity, the daily integrity of his commitment to God. And this true priest's activity, the faithful teaching of God's law, married with his example, had a good effect on the people. His ministry was life-giving, turning people away from sin, and that is life-giving, for if we continue to sin, we are doomed to die. A priest characterised by this attitude, activity, example, fulfilled the calling of priests, discharged their role in the Sinai covenant for the lips of a priest, or to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. They ought to be those who guard the revelation of God, people from whom others can come to know the truth of God and his will. That was their role and it was a life-giving one which brought glory to God where it was faithfully discharged, proclaiming the truth of God and helping God's people live as they were meant to be, the people of God in whom the nations could see the goodness of knowing the true and only God. 
This covenant with Levi, where it was lived as it was designed to be, was a blessing to the priest and the people, the means of living at peace with their God and commending him to their neighbours. And why does God outline the good of the covenant and the characteristics of a true priest? Well, it's not just to show how far the priests of Malachi day had fallen short of God's intention or to help them see why this falling short was having such disastrous consequences. No, these things, brothers and sisters, are written for us, for every believer in Jesus is called to be that true priest. This life of reverence, true instruction, being an example of daily integrity in walking with God should characterise our leaders, yes, but it should also characterise each one of us, shouldn't it? Each one of us should be standing in awe of God's name, in awe of the God who has revealed himself to us. And that means for us, it means that we have to stand in awe of the God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son and Spirit, the one name. And so each of us, as we listen to this, should be committed Trinitarian believers, full of wonder that the Father could send the Son into the world to save us and that the Father and the Son should send the Spirit on his people. And so the Trinity should not be something we speak of awkwardly. It actually should be the climactic revelation of God by God that is a source of wonder and praise and joy for his people. We should be in awe of his name. That means at least thinking about the fact that God could reveal himself in the Son and give his spirit to us so that we could know him. Oh, and each one of us should be teaching the truth about God, teaching him to obey everything I've commanded, says Jesus. And so when people ask us about God and his ways, we should be able to respond. And our answers must be faithful to what God has revealed. We're not to adapt what God has said about himself to make it more palatable to our audience. And so in a world which is embracing pluralism, we actually have to faithfully say there is only one way to be right with God and it's trusting Jesus. In a world which says only our judgment matters and if we decide it's good, then it's good for us, we have to be faithful in saying that God alone is the true judge and he will judge sin. We have to have the truth of God on our lips. And yes, our speech in general should be true and reliable, always trustworthy. And each one of us should be an example of what it is to walk with God. For that's what we're called to do. We should be living a life in harmony with God's character and will. Whoever says he abides in Jesus, says 1 John, ought to walk in the same way in which he Walked our life should be in step with the life of Jesus, giving ourselves to what Jesus gave himself to do. Honouring the Father by doing his will, walking in love. As Paul says, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. And it's when we're true in our relationship because we fear the Lord, we're in awe of his revelation of himself. It's when we're true to that relationship, not when we adapt our lifestyle or talk about God to what our neighbours or our society wants to hear. 
that we will be used of God to turn many from sin, to turn many to life. But what happens when God's priests don't live up to their calling, don't live in the covenant relationship God has established with them? <coughs> well, we know the answer to that from Malachi's day. And the consequences of the failure of the priests in Malachi's day helps us to see what happens when God's priests today, that is us, Christian people, God's people, don't live true to their calling. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching you have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty, so I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. The priests of Malachi's day have turned from the way. They've not followed God's way. They've chosen their own path, not the way of obedience to God. And so says God, they've violated the covenant. That is, they have corrupted their relationship with the Lord. They've abandoned the fear of the Lord as the bedrock and guiding principle of their lives. And in particular, it's been shown in their partiality in administering the law. They've treated the law, God's law, and their role as its interpreters as if it was actually their own, not God-given, as if they were only accountable to themselves in how they use it and so could use it to promote their own interests, show favouritism, and not administer it as if they were accountable to God. And that was a partiality that brought both the law and their role into disrepute. And so they've ceased to be an example to the people. And what was the effect of this departure from God's ways? Well, the effect on the people of God was that they caused many to stumble. That is, they made it hard for them to continue to follow God. They actually led them into sin. <coughs> and the effect on the priests of abandoning God's way was that they would experience God's judgment. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. As they have treated God, remember Malachi's complaint in chapter 1, they despised him, so God will cause them to be treated. They showed no respect for God, and so no respect will be shown to them. The people will come to despise them for their hypocrisy and self-interest and they'll become an irrelevancy to whom people will not listen. And again I say these words are written for us. And can't you see the current state of the church in the West in these words? I mean, what do we see in much of Western Christianity? People who say they are Christians, but who treat God as weightless, as of no worth. God is someone whose word, whether on sexuality or love of money, can be disregarded. A God not worth sacrificing career or relationship or income for to obey his command, to make disciples of all nations. A God who can be redefined to suit the times, to be a God who won't judge or who can be talked about as mother or who no longer insists that all honour Jesus as his only son. And teaching that, despite Jesus' warning, makes it hard for people to live as God's people, causes them to stumble by teaching wrong as right and right as wrong. 
And that's what's happening. Oh, people who say they're Christians saying, you can worship other gods by participating in multi-faith services, think they're okay. You can have sex outside marriage, whether it's straight or gay. What we see in the West is people who say they're Christians openly living lives that are disobedient to God. And yes, we see partiality, don't we? Down more on same-sex sin, say, than heterosexual sin. That may be our partiality. Condemning sexual sin more than greed. Overlooking violence in the family in the name of, say, distorted teachings on headship. Being very understanding of our own failings, so willing to forgive, but harsh on those outside. And what is the effect of this departure from God's way? Well, it means that Christian people are no longer a blessing to a society, but a curse. For those in their societies hear no clear word from God, no clear call to repent. God's people, where they depart from his way, cease to be salt and light. Rather than stopping the rot, they contribute to it and intensify the darkness. And what do we see? The church is despised and humiliated. And that is a terrible judgment on a people and a nation. For where will they hear about the only saviour, the Lord Jesus, if not from people who say they are believers? What can be done? Because Malachi's is God's word to us. Well, the wonder is that something can be done. But it can be done because we do have a faithful priest, the Lord Jesus, who feared God and did his will who taught the truth about God, who made the one sacrifice of himself that can atone for our sins. Something can be done because of Jesus' death for sin. And the way back starts as it always does, in listening to God and turning our hearts to give him glory, to give him the weight, the regard, the respect, the honour that is his due as our creator and judge and Lord. And that means seeking mercy for us ourselves individually and for the church collectively and for our society. Seeking mercy that will cleanse us and allow us to come to God and move us to live God's way. And yes, seeking spirit-given change because of our merciful priest who's cleansed us so that the spirit can come and dwell in our lives and where we do that where we individually and collectively listen to God and give him glory then we can start attending to our life together and individually and making sure that we are vigilant in who we select in leadership that they have lives of integrity and they speak the truth. Oh yes, and making sure that each one of us is committed to being that true priest God looks for. Somebody who sets his heart to honour him, sets her heart to fear him. Somebody who will serve him by speaking the truth of the gospel. And somebody who will, by the power of God's Spirit, walk in step with God, where every action, every thought, every word is seen to be true, in harmony with a God of justice and righteousness, 
the God of graciousness and love. Let's pray. Pray for ourselves that we will actually listen to God and honour him and pray for our society that God will be merciful and make us true priests. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy that we would heed this word and that you would make us people today and every day who listen to you and who give you the glory that your revelation of yourself in your Son deserves. We pray through the work of your Spirit, make us good for each other and our society by living lives that are in harmony with your will and by speaking the truth to one another and to all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.